I'm watching a giant ship in a lock in the Panama Canal. It's currently being raised 27 feet by water gushing in from the artificial lake nearby. The guide you can hear tells us it'll take 8 to 10 minutes to lift the ship. You might be wondering why we have to lift the vessel in the Panama Canal. It's one of the many things I wondered about in Panama. Hola, welcome back from the Panama Canal. That mini lesson you just heard about canal locks was given by a guide on the Miraflores locks. It's one of three sets of locks on the Panama Canal. Miraflores is also the name of the man-made lake that the guide mentioned. If you were curious about why the boats need to be lifted using the locks, it's because the Panama Canal was built over the mountains using artificial lakes to bridge the spaces in between. When I first mentioned Panama, the canal is probably the first thing you thought of. Either that or the fact that Panama is an isthmus. In any case, the canal is Panama's most famous attraction, and it certainly didn't disappoint when we saw it. There's something about the artificial waterway that seems magical almost. But it's really just the right mix of gravity and engineering. Still, it has earned its place in the old palindrome. A man, a plan, a canal. Panama. Hi, Kiara Powell here again, your guide to Padma. In episode one, you met Tony, our professor for international reporting, Alfonso, our fixer, and a few other people. I also told you all about the international reporting course, why we do what we do, and how exactly it is that we do it. Last time, I introduced you to one of the people who helps make what we do possible. Remember Helene Eckstein? She's one of the donors to the program both money-wise and insight-wise. Her interest in the program comes from her own Penn State experience studying abroad when she was an undergrad. Helene happened to be in Panama at the same time as us, so I caught up with her in the busy lobby of the hotel she was staying at. My love is travel, and I graduated from Penn State in what was then the School of Journalism. It wasn't a college as yet, that's how old I am. But one of the primary experiences of my life was going on the first study abroad program that Penn State offered. And it was to France, and it really changed my life. Helene now owns her own travel agency. She says when people don't travel at a young age, they might never get comfortable in other countries or cultures. So having an experience like international reporting gives us an advantage. I hear people who are like my age, and they're just starting to travel, and they're very scared. And they think, oh my God, this is going to happen to me. Oh my God, I can't go to this country because blah, 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 blah. It's something they hear on the news. And then there are the people who say, well, my wife and I won't go on the same plane. Why? Well, if both of us die, then the children will be orphans. I said, do you go in the same car? Oh, all the time. Do you know your chances are better in the car than in the plane of dying? As I said, that's why I think having these kind of experience when you're young, you're not going to buy into that nonsense because you've already done it. You're not going to be afraid if somebody offers you a better job, but it means moving to a different city. You're going to say, well, why not? Helene's words resonated with quite a few people in our class, particularly the one-fourth whom had never left the country before. For all of us, even our professors, Panama would be a new destination. But for that one-fourth, it would be an entirely new frontier in their lives. 
having to focus on their stories in addition to adjusting to potential culture shock would be a challenge. At least one of us, however, felt right at home. Well, almost. Kamisha Prince is one of my classmates. Her family's from Trinidad, and she used to live there herself. I talked to her soon after we landed in Panama. I just love it so much. I mean, we're just in the airport. <laughs> it reminds me of Trinidad, like the weather, the air itself. It has like a Caribbean, it's, it's different from air overseas. I don't know how to describe it. It's so warm. We just have to be here. Oh my God, look at the trees, like palm trees. This is amazing. I'm excited. For Kamisha, palm trees and sultry sea breezes conjure up her childhood home. For most of us, though, stepping off that plane felt balmy and alluring, like the generic Caribbean paradise that you always see in the movies. But over the next 10 days, we would learn just how distinctive Panama actually is. Remember last episode when I told you about the Biodiversity Museum? Here's one of their guides explaining how Panama came to be. We know that 45 million years ago, Panama didn't even exist. There's a theory that says that Panama was actually under the water. And when the tectonic plate had this uh, earthquake in, in herself, she separated from the tectonic plate Panama is right now, which is the Caribbean plate. So with all that movement and all that earthquakes of, the, of that time, under the water, there was uh, like a bunch of volcanoes. And because of all that volcanic activity, Panama was able to raise from the ocean. So once Panama surfaced, it actually turned out to be a really big deal. Here's another guide with the next part of the story. So when Panama emerged from the sea, the biological forces made this last connection between North America and South America. And that moment, it started many events. For example, the migration of the species. Species from north went to south, species from south went to north because of Panama. Due to the influx of traveling flora and fauna in both directions over Panamanian soil, the country became a biological crossroads of sorts. Basically, a living bridge. This development was super significant because North and South America had been separated for 70 million years up until that point. The migration of so many different types of plants and animals made Panama what it is today, one of the most biodiverse places on the planet. To get a sense of what I'm talking about, consider this. Panama is a country the size of the state of South Carolina. Yet, there are more species of trees and birds here in this tiny country than in all of the United States and Canada combined. That's insane, but it's not all. At the same time Panama was bridging the gap between two continents, it was becoming a permanent divide between two oceans. As the isthmus appeared, both the Pacific and Caribbean oceans began to evolve in completely different ways. And according to some Panamanians, that evolution paved the way for the human species. The local belief is that the emergence of the isthmus changed the current of both oceans, which directly influenced the onset of the Ice Age. These developments changed the climate in northern Africa, effectively making it drier and creating a desert where rainforests had once been. The primates who once lived in those rainforests were forced to adapt to their new environment. One of those adaptations was something you may be familiar with, walking upright. In other words, as many Panamanians will proudly tell you, Without Panama, 
we might not be here today. Aside from the rise of human civilization, Panamanians also take pride in their more recent history. Our fixer, Alfonso, provided a crash course. Panama became independent in 1821. And we didn't have much of an army, so we decided to join the Great Colombia, which was Simón Bolívar's attempt to create a reflection of the U.S. in South America. At this time, Panama was not its own nation. Rather, it was a part of modern-day Colombia. Panama was so weak, it couldn't become independent of Colombia. So we became sort of like a forgotten province. That's where the United States enters the picture. At the turn of the 20th century, Theodore Roosevelt was president, fresh from his triumph in Cuba in the Spanish-American War. At the time, Roosevelt was greatly affected by a book titled The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. Written by Admiral Alfred Thayer Mahan, it basically said that every great empire in history had had control of the seas. Immediately, he knew that the Panama Canal had to be built because that was the only way to move his fleet between the Atlantic and the Pacific quickly. So he tried to strike a deal with Colombia, but the Colombians got greedy and they wanted more money and more rights and so on. So a group of very smart, very diligent Panamanians said, this is our chance to gain independence. We, we had tried to gain independence 17 times before. So it was, it was an, an active affair, but we, we, somebody saw that as an opportunity so they basically started negotiations with the U.S. government, which eventually led to our independence through U.S. weaponry and through U.S. pressure from Colombia. In an early example of gunboat diplomacy, the U.S. sent a warship to Panama to show its support for the rebels who wanted independence from Colombia. The Colombians didn't challenge the Americans, and Panama was recognized as an independent nation. The Americans weren't the first to consider building a canal across Panama. The French had been at work on one for decades. But the enormous costs, both financially and in lives lost to diseases like yellow fever and malaria, forced them to abandon the project. The Americans would build on what the French had started, but they took a different approach to it. What happened was that Theodore Roosevelt got a good deal on buying the French canal excavation in Panama. So a lot of peaks had been taken down, a lot of mountains had been carved and so on. But it was really the U.S. that had the brilliant insight of flooding the mountain range in the middle of the country so that ships could be elevated through it. The U.S. successfully built the canal and would continue to maintain control over it. But where did that leave the Panamanians? So we gained our independence, but in a sense we didn't because we were very subservient to the U.S., right? The canal zone was established here and it was a source of a lot of resentment because U.S. soldiers were not kind to Panamanian citizens. And in a way, we were treated like second-class citizens in our own country. Fast forward a few decades. The government in Panama was deposed by a military dictatorship that ruled from the late 60s all the way to 1989. And Torrijos, who was the main dictator, was the one who finalized the negotiations for the new treaty, which established that the U.S. would leave the Panamanian soil December 31st, 1999. Panama finally gets total ownership of the canal and gains its independence. Which brings us to the present, and to the people like Alfonso, who have spent a lot of time considering and planning Panama's future. It's clear that because the country's so thin and it's located smack in the middle of the Americas, 
we're obviously going to be a port country. We're obviously going to be a communications country. We're going to be a hub of airlines, of business. So it's clear that that's going to always be an important part of, of who we are. If biodiversity and economic diversity are key characteristics of Panama, so too is its ethnic diversity. According to Alfonso, Panama's business sector is strengthened by its healthy race relations. I think Panama has always worked as a sort of um, mixing ground for all the different races. That mixing process had begun by at least the second half of the 1800s. Workers came to Panama from a number of different Latin American and Caribbean countries, not to mention others, such as Spain, China, France, and the U.S. They came to work on the canal and other development projects. Today, the country is even more diverse. If you walk around the place, you'll find Serbs and Russians and Hungarian people and Swiss people. And it's just very fun to see a country that is so non-homogeneous. I like that idea of Panama as a place where um, you're, you're sort of escaping countries that have more fixed race lines about who should do what and where and when to a country where you're truly free despite your skin color or your interests to actually develop yourself as a person. When we arrived in Panama, we knew that much of our time there would not be spent together as a class. We all had our own interviews to attend, background information to collect, and footage and photographs to get. Under no circumstances were we to travel alone. But most people opted to work in pairs as opposed to large groups. However, one thing that brings everyone together is the class dinner. It's one of the traditions of the international reporting trip. In addition to the class and its professors, Tony also invited Alfonso and several local journalists to attend. The dinner was set up in part to gather everyone in one space, but also to introduce the class to how news is tackled differently in Panama and why. One of the local journalists present was Rita Vasquez, the deputy director of La Prensa. That's one of Panama's most popular newspapers. Rita is also the president of the Panamanian National Journalism Council. A lawyer by training, she started at La Prensa as a reporter. In the spring of 2015, the paper sent Rita to Germany. She was working on a story as part of a team of international journalists investigating high-level fraud, offshore banking, and tax evasion. When I walk in there, there's 200 journalists there, and I had to do a 30-minute presentation. We went like this. This is Rita, everybody quiet. Uh, she comes from Panama, everybody. There was a boss in the room. She, uh, it's a lawyer who worked in the financial services industry. The noise was like beef in a hive. And then they said, uh, and she was a lawyer in Panama as well. She, she knows everything about the offshore industry. From there on, for the first time, to be uh, followed by the media, even to the bathroom. The reason for the buzz around Rita was the story they were all working on, which would become known as the Panama Papers. Sound familiar? She was being followed because the story was based on leaked documents involving a law firm based in Panama, aka a topic she was assumed to be well acquainted with. Rita says following her presentation and her return to Panama, she thought her life would go back to normal. It didn't. So what happened was, I would be working my normal hours. I do the late shift of the newspaper, so basically I'm the last person who reads it. I'm almost going around 10 o'clock at night every day. When she would get home, 
Her husband, also a journalist at La Prenza, will be waiting for her with a list of questions from other journalists that needed answers. So we worked until about 2 o'clock in the morning with the other journalists in the project. I went to bed around 2.30. At 6 o'clock in the morning, I started getting phone calls from Australia and Finland and Iceland and everywhere. So yeah, I didn't get much sleep for about nine months maybe. Around the same time this was happening, Rita says Leprenza got a visit from some of the biggest companies named in the investigation. At that point, I was threatened. They realized they had come to the conclusion that uh, they knew who was organizing everybody, they described me, and for the next four months, we had a bodyguard, and I wasn't pleasant. That wasn't pleasant because if you went grocery shopping, there was a guy behind you, and that just felt weird. He would just drive me to the grocery store, he would drive me everywhere I needed to go, even to a beach house. So he became part of our family, until I say, you know, it's enough. In July, I said, you know, I can't go on with this. You know, if anything's going to happen, it's going to happen. And these are the risks as journalists that we always uh, run when we do investigations. Because you're always going to affect somebody. But the good news is, when you're affecting or when you are getting somebody uncomfortable, that's when it means that you are doing your job properly. According to Rita, being threatened and lacking a personal life comes with the territory as a journalist. Then there was the ethical responsibility of reporting on people she knew professionally and socially, something that was bound to happen in a small country like Panama, especially in a case so close to her like this. So Panama Papers broke, and if I had maybe all my friends from the financial services industry, I have to. So I know who my real friends are. A few weeks after we got back from Panama, we would learn that Rita had gained something else for her troubles covering the Panama Papers. She was part of the team that won this year's Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting. Not bad, huh? At the time, of course, we didn't know that Rita was a Pulitzer Prize winner. But one of my classmates, Alana Richardson, was still thrilled to be able to sit next to her at dinner. She is a very incredible individual. Her stories and her experiences just inspired me to kind of be a better journalist and want to be a better journalist, you know, not just now here in Panama trying to get these international stories, but I mean when I go back to the States and whatever direction I choose to take my career in. Alana's story was about the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, or STRI. It's the only Smithsonian Bureau outside of the United States. Yes, you heard right. The Smithsonian that's based in Washington, D.C.? It also has an outpost in Panama. STRI describes itself as the world leader in providing a global platform for tropical research and training the next generation of tropical scientists. Because Alana was exploring the importance of the environment and biodiversity in Panama, Stry was the perfect place for her to research her story. But she's a broadcast journalist and knew she'd need to venture outside the safety of a research institute. She took Rita's advice about making sacrifices in the name of great journalism to heart. I'm from Long Island, 
and I've never been to a rainforest. And to be quite honest, I think this is going to be a challenge for me in terms of I am not a fan of insects, but I'm in Panama and biodiversity is such a large portion of the culture here. So I think for me to be able to have this experience, regardless of maybe the challenges I may face with that fear, for me as a journalist, I think it's important for me to do what's best for my story. And that means going to areas like rainforest. If I'm talking about biodiversity, I don't want to just show graphics. You know, I want to actually experience it and have my viewers experience it with me. The tropical forest Alana visited is called Barro Colorado Island, located in the Panama Canal waterway. Though only her viewers will get the chance to experience it with her, our entire class had the opportunity to go see the institute itself, which is in Panama City. Just like our class dinner, the Stry outing was one of the few times we ventured out as a group, with all 16 students and four professors. Each group excursion we went on was carefully crafted to show us yet another side of Panama or its people. As I mentioned before, while in Panama, no one was allowed to travel alone. No one was really allowed to leave Panama City either. At least, not without a very good reason, a prior discussion with Tony, and probably one of the professors. Now, that might seem harsh, but Panama City is the capital and by far the largest city in Panama. So, for most of my classmates' stories, there was no need to leave the city anyway. Anyone that they might have needed to interview, or anything that they wanted to photograph or film, was probably somewhere in the city already. This rule was put in place above all else to keep us safe. Before leaving the U.S., Alfonso had told us that the political climate in Panama was corrupt and that there had been demonstrations and protests taking place. Although the trip was full of journalists who would naturally be curious about that sort of occurrence, that was one thing risk management told us specifically to stay away from. In addition, we were in a foreign country and many of us definitely looked like tourists. It was smarter to stay among other tourists than to venture out into the great unknown. Many of the dangerous situations we talked about before setting off for Panama were hypothetical. One was not. A little less than a month before our arrival date, news broke that a 23-year-old woman from New York had been strangled in Panama. She was hiking alone on Bastimentos Island a popular Panamanian tourist stop. Her attacker had yet to be found. When we heard the news, we were all unnerved. As the leader of our trip and the one who would ultimately be responsible should anything go wrong, Tony was understandably shaken. I'm always nervous about personal safety. I'm willing to accept somebody who goes and doesn't get a good story or, or somebody who goes and goofs off the whole week and, and doesn't do anything. But we can't, I don't even want to think about somebody getting hurt or, or sick or something like that. That's the one thing that bothers me, that keeps me up at night all the time. So why did that incident shake me? It just reminded me again that things are so fragile. Uh, you know, you can plan and plan and plan and you can't stop everything from happening. We rely mostly on uh, you guys being smart. It comes down to the students making smart decisions, not taking risks. To aid us in making smart decisions, Tony makes us do things like learn everyone's first and last name spelled correctly, and memorize the hotel and flight information. To check that we've actually done it, a required part of the class is a final exam before our trip. Remember my classmate Matt? He was featured in one of the questions. It went something like this. 
If a beautiful woman in a red convertible pulls up alongside your group and says to Matt, Hola, senor, would you like to come for a ride? Do you, A, encourage Matt and send him on his way? B, tell her, no, he doesn't need a ride and keep walking? Or C, I'll get in the car with him and go. Obviously, the correct answer is B, but it's always good to check that everyone is on the same page. So it's obvious that an approved journey out of Panama City was a really big deal. It required time, effort, lots of planning, and needed to be absolutely necessary for the story. I already told you about Alana who will be going to Barro, Colorado Island to study Panama's biodiversity up close. Panama has 80% of the world's tropical rainforest, but only 6% of the world's leading universities and research facilities actually study the tropics. So there is a giant disconnect there that I think Stry is really trying to kind of bridge that gap. What's really special about Stry ultimately is that they have these long-term research projects, whereas some universities and other research facilities, they'll only do research for a short amount of time due to limited resources. But Stry has so many resources that they're able to have these projects and continue conducting them for years, ultimately. And that's how they find out this in-depth information that they could kind of disseminate into the world. Barro, Colorado Island is Stry's primary long-term research site. As a protected monument, Projects can continue there without the threat of deforestation that faces other places in Panama. In order to go to BCI, Barro Colorado Island, you have to get up super early in the morning. <laughs> uh, so we got up around 4, and we took one of the cars from the hotel all the way to the pier of Gamboa. By we, she means she and Kayla Fish, our classmate who went with her. And the boat was there that takes us to BCI. We get there, and it is absolutely beautiful. <laughs> And we just, you know, mingle a little bit for a while. And then I thought we were ultimately going to be going on a tour with the rest of the tourists that are in Panama. We actually split up from the group. And Sonia kind of takes us on our own personal tour for a couple hours throughout the island. Sonia is a researcher from Stry that Alana got to work with while conducting her story. So we were able to get a lot of shots, um, a lot of great footage for the video, which was really exciting. Panama has about 90 degree days, so it's really hot, it's really humid. I have this giant JVC camera and I'm lugging it into the forest, trying to get shots of howler monkeys and toucans. And it is the most stressful yet amazing experience at the same time. Kayla has like the tripod on her back with her backpack and she's just dripping sweat. <laughs> and I'm here with the camera struggling, my hands are shaking. I'm like, did I get the shot? Did I get the shot? I mean, animals move so fast. You know, I feel like you have to be trained in that in order to get a really good image of, of an animal, again, a monkey, a bird, a butterfly flying. You wouldn't believe how difficult it is. I mean, we see these things on TV and we automatically think, oh, okay, that's great. Beautiful shot. But we never think of how did they do that? Alana clearly figured out how they do it because she came home with some incredible footage of life in the rainforest, including huge beetles the size of your palm that make you appreciate the dangers of venturing beyond Panama City. Alyssa Gregory, another one of my classmates, also left Panama City. Like Alana, Alyssa will be venturing into nature on a trip into the remote jungle of Panama, but the species she was reporting on was Homo sapiens. Specifically, 
humans who have carved out a home in the wild. Her story was about Kaluyala, most succinctly described as an ongoing effort to build the world's most sustainable town. It's 50 minutes from downtown Panama, but feels like three worlds away. Katie and I accompanied Alyssa on her trip, and it was definitely interesting. I got to talk to her before we left. I'm going to an off-the-grid sustainable community. They have like internship programs, they have schooling out there, they build their own homes out there. I think they're called ranchos. I would just think it'd be curious to see how they live out there. Where does one stay in the middle of the jungle? So I haven't gotten all the logistics yet, but according to the lady who's been helping me uh, facilitate my project, I'll be staying in a tent. So I'm winging it. I'm just going to use what they have as if I was just someone who packed their bag and went out there. They have plumbing. That's a plus. So it might not be that bad. We'll see. Alyssa said her hope in going to Kaluyala was to act as a fly on the wall to get a better understanding of just how exactly it is they've made life in the jungle work. She told me encountering a snake was one of her biggest fears for the trip, but it wasn't the only one. I'm scared of the unknown because with journalism, you never really know what's going to happen. You get out there, but I'm trying to just go in as prepared as possible. Ready or not, into the jungle we go. That's next time on Potomac.